The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, August the 30th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Summer is drawing to a close. The youth of the nation are returning to their studies. And with me in studio, spick and span in their freshly polished shoes and new gansies, are our political editor, Pat Leahy, and our political reporter, Sarah Barden. Welcome back to you both. We haven't seen you for a while. Sarah, I'm going to ease you in with an easy junior cert English question. What is the difference between mandatory and compulsory? There is no difference between mandatory and compulsory. Um... Well, I'd like to say that I have been around. I just haven't frequented the uh, the offices of the podcast, uh, but I have been floating around and listening to your podcasts intentionally over the, intently over. I, I, I would expect no less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Perhaps you give us a brief overview of the last number of episodes. Well, the last week's was particularly interesting. Pat, we were just speaking about it before we came in here with the housing one. You, you were saying you found that quite remarkable. I did. I, in, uh, in fact, I found Connor Skeen's uh, uh, description of the nature, the complex nature of the housing problem to be uh, illuminating. Indeed, it would have been great if he'd been on the podcast. But even <laughs> even, 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 apart from that, um, Sarah, I'm referring to your piece actually today, which contains the words both mandatory and compulsory in the headline in relation to this ID card mess. Is it right to describe it as a mess? Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a shambles, but uh, one that I suppose has just... The Irish Times, I suppose, stumbled upon and now has brought it to uh, to, to, to national debate. Essentially, um, an, an elderly woman was um, denied her pension. She's owed about thirteen thousand euro because she has declined to get a public service card, and that has opened up a, a range of legitimate questions about this uh, public service card. Up to now, we were aware that um, in order to, um, that, that it was, I suppose, government policy to access a public service card. But what we weren't clear on and what the Irish Times has exposed, and particularly Elaine Edwards has exposed, is that it's now mandatory for a whole range of services. And not only is it mandatory for a whole range of services, but that your uh, your welfare payments could be suspended or withdrawn if you don't have No, I mean, a lot of these are vital card. services. I mean, obviously, social welfare, old age pension, children, children's allowance, uh, due to extend out to passport applications and driving licence applications. So essentially, it's going to cover 98% of the population. Absolutely. Um, the Currently, if you are to sit a driver theory test, you have to have a public service card. And in uh, 2018 in order to renew your driver's license or to renew your passport application you will have to have a public service card and also in order for you to get a marriage certificate that you will have to have a public service card so it seems all of a sudden there is a growing sense of necessity of this card one that you know the general public were unclear of or certainly unaware of um, and Al- nobody the government then says this is all on foot of legislation which was passed way back in 2005 there was no big fuss about it at the time and it's just now rolling out across you know across a broader swathe of the population but it's all legitimate there was further I think supporting legislation about four or five years ago um, so it's all above board well see that's what the difficulty is in the legislation that they keep citing um, in the uh, 2005 Act, there is no provision for, to withdraw or suspend a payment if you don't have a public service card. In fact, the legislation in 2005 just, I suppose, introduced the concept of having a public service card. It doesn't state uh, uh, quite clearly that this is what the card will be called. It doesn't state what um, 
what the card will entail or it certainly doesn't uh, contain any provision about the necessity of the card. They then referred to, to, to a 2013 Act, which essentially was the Labour uh, Fine Gael government accepting the proposal or the idea of a public service card. But in terms of uh, the legislative basis, it's quite opaque and I actually don't know if they have any legislative uh basis to do what they're doing now um, in particular the withdrawing of and suspending of money but also um, in terms of accessing your welfare payments um, the current legislation says that you need to have a form of national ID suddenly now the only form of national ID that it seems to be acceptable to uh, the Department of Social Protection is the public service card and that's a policy that obviously the government adopted but in order for it to um, be then used to withdraw or suspend payments that has to be put in a legislative basis and it hasn't that hasn't happened so the government have found themselves in quite a quagmire and nobody as of now I, I know the Minister for Social Protection was on the radio this morning but I, she seems to have um, further exposed this problem by saying that the information that is contained in your public service card is available to 50 agencies. Now, well, uh, that's exactly what people would be worried about, isn't it? And, it. and to be, this centres on the Department of Social Protection. It has a, a not very good record in terms of its record on data protection. Absolutely. And if you remember when um, people were asked to sign up for Irish Water, um, the Irish Water Conservation Grant, they were asked to give their PPS number and it created... A, a huge controversy and people um, refused to do so and, and the idea was scrapped because people don't necessarily trust their information with the Department uh, of Social Protection and maybe they're right to, so, to do so. But I think what's more troubling is that they, if, or what's more of concern to people is that information that they ha- uh, that the Department of Social Protection has is now being transferred to other government departments and it seems other agencies. So is Leo Varadkar going to have to get a hold of this Sarah, uh, because there's been sort of sense of confusion from different members of the government, or not that they're not singing off the same hymn sheet. Yeah, I think Regina Doherty's attempt today to clarify the situation has probably made it somewhat worse. And in fairness to the minister, she has found herself in a controversy that is entirely not of her own making. I mean, she was a Fine Gael um, backbencher when it was first. Um, signed between the Fine Gael and Labour government in 2013. Um, she was obviously a minister uh, when it became, <coughs> when it seems to have, have uh, its impact or influence seems to have grown. But um, it's really, it was a decision taken by the former Minister of Social Protection who happens now to be the Taoiseach. Um, and also I mean, a decision that the uh, Minister of Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Donoghue, took. Together they promoted this card, um, a range of protocols and uh, press conferences about um the benefits of it and as you said there are benefits of it the streamlining of information between government departments isn't necessarily a bad thing we're often given off about how they you know how they don't have joined up thinking or or how their systems don't talk to each other exactly and these are how I suppose holes grow and things fall through the cracks Um, but I suppose the difficulty is as Pat said is that there has been absolutely no public debate on it and really um, the People who have the public card in their procession, because two point I think it's two point eight million have them in their procession at present, probably weren't aware of the consequences or the implications of what they were signing themselves up for, because they rely on the public uh, service support, um, like welfare payments, you know, and child benefit. They require, and then if it's a, if they're told that it's mandatory 
to have a public service card to access those payments. They sign on the dotted line as they're requested to do so. And perhaps they didn't know the consequences of what they were signing themselves up for. But, you know, it's been a tra- it's been a concept that's been in train for years. But really, I suppose the big question is, why is it so necessary now to access so many various mm. public services? I mean, the, the way that I suppose it's going is that every single person in the country will now be required to have a public service card. And, you know, if that's if that's the case, then fine. But we, uh, the media and politicians, need to have a a very robust, and see, very honest. I see suggestions in some of the I see suggestions in some of the newspapers today, for example, that although it's, the government has been making quite a point that you won't be asked to produce this card by the Gardaí on the street or in certain circumstances. However, there is some suggestion that the Gardaí will will seek to use it to replace the age card, which they which they give to young people at the moment, yeah. so they can prove their age when they're looking seeing to buy alcohol. Yeah, I think that's whatever. a fear of people that you know you could be walking down the street and the guards would say you know, show me your ID and Mm. you'll have to produce that public service card. Now, the Department of Social Protection have said that that isn't a legitimate concern, that that there is no no lawful basis for the members of Vanguard Shia Corner to do so. But what what they have done inadvertently is said that the public service card is the only acceptable form of identification. Um, You have to get it to get your passport and you have to get it to get your driver's licence. When you're travelling, you know, you're required to produce your passport. When you're uh, driving, you're required to produce your driver's license. But it seems like if you're required to do anything else in the country, it seems that you have to produce your public service card. There are countless examples. I'm just thinking about how the politics of it plays out over the next while. There are countless examples, you know, from e-voting to water charges where ministers got themselves into trouble by pushing forward with bureaucratic plans or plans produced or initiatives produced by the civil service that the uh, that the ministers were not necessarily entirely au fait with the details sure. of. They sat in rooms and, in and the civil servant said this is all happening, it's all being agreed, everything's yeah. fine. Don't and when it blows it. up, yeah. it's politicians left holding the can. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> if I were Regina uh, Doherty and Leo Varadkar, I think I would be looking back at the history of these things and thinking, well, hold on, do we want to... Uh, you know, do I want to go and die in a ditch, right. politically speaking, for the public services card? If I was Regina Doherty, I would I imagine I'd be answering that. I, 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 I think quite right too. Now, the story which has kept bubbling on through the summer and is likely to figure large in discussions about estimates and budgets in the in the months to come is the housing crisis. Uh, as as you referred to already, Pat, we had a, we had a lengthy discussion of it on on last week's podcast. And there are various things knocking around at the moment, including this whole question of the first-time buyer's grant, which was only introduced, what, less than a year ago? And now seems to be heading for the chopping block, or at least that's under discussion, sir? Well, yeah, there's a review underway, but the, the Minister for Housing, O Murphy, has, has pretty much you know said that he doesn't believe that you know it should be retained. And as we had in the paper yesterday, there's several senior figures in the housing um, markets who are saying that it is, you know, that it should not be scrapped. But it seems to have already been a government decision that Tisha Leo Varadkar and Minister Murphy have already stated that they uh, you know that they don't believe in its retention it was only introduced after a lot of negotiation between the former Minister for Finance Michael Noonan and the former Minister for Housing Simon Coveney I mean it took a, it took a long while to get it over uh, to get it over the line in time for October's budget um, and I think you know there's a great deal of people who've accessed it I think the um, I think the average price was the, the average was 40,000 I think that people accessed but I'm open for clarification on that but um, Which is essentially to go towards people's yeah, 14, deposits I think, yeah. 14 yeah. sorry yeah. Mm. Um, to go towards buying their buying their homes but um, yeah it seems like it's already decided that it's it's for the chopping block um, but in reality um, what it has done it has, has driven up huge demand um, 
now that it's it's um, now that its future is uh, is under is at risk, people have been flocking to access the grant, and again has just driven demand. A lot of first time buyers knowing that it probably won't be there trying to get in, in six quick. months' time. They're getting in quick quick. And what that has what has that has done has created a you know a, a, a mini property bubble for for um certain houses. I mean what you're seeing is houses are being advertised for a certain price um but they go up fifty, sixty thousand by the time that they're eventually sold to to a couple or to to a family. So you know, there's a lot of things that are to come down the line from the Minister for Housing, but he's been particularly silent. And I think on a week where you're walking the streets and you see these posters of little children um, who yeah. are homeless, I think the government's silence and their refusal, I suppose, to, you know, at least give an indication as to where they stand in a number of policy initiatives. I mean, there's the vacant home strategy that has been sitting on the uh, desk of the Minister for Housing. Uh, since before the cabinet reshuffle, the Minister for Housing, Simon, Co- former Minister for Housing Simon Coveney, during the Fine Gael leadership uh, debate, said it was ready and raring to go. But we're, you know, we're a, a couple of months down the line. We've seen, we've seen no sign of it to come. So there's a number of things that have been sitting on the desk, and I think in reality that it was time to hear from them. I, about I, what I they're do wonder, do. Pat. I mean, I know we've had a change of Taoiseach and a cabinet reshuffle, but the same party is still in power, and for a kind of a pretty significant intervention in the market at a time of huge housing crisis to be implemented and then possibly to be junked again. What was the thinking behind bringing it in in the first place and what's changed so much in the intervening eight months? Uh, I think, um, now, I I suppose we should say that no decisions have been reached on this, formally at least. The uh, review is ongoing and the matter will be uh, addressed in the budget. But Sarah's absolutely right. There's the expectation in government circles is that this thing uh, will be, uh, this thing will be dumped come the budget with perhaps a sunset uh, period uh, uh, after that. Um, uh, to process applications that are uh, that are already in. It, it was introduced over the objections of the Department of Finance in uh, in the first place, who warned of it simply inflating prices. And I think you know while the government was anxious last year to be seen to do something for first time buyers, the basic problem in the housing market is not that first time buyers don't have enough money, it's that there is a lack of supply of houses coming on which would, if there was more houses coming on, of course, then the prices would But the argument, the from, the build, the argument from the building industry was that the return which they were getting on building these houses wasn't sufficient to justify the cost of building them and therefore, presumably, they're rubbing their hands at the prospect of that inflationary pressure caused by this measure which should cause them to build more. Yeah, well this is part of the you know, part of the difficulties in the, uh, in, in the accommodation crisis, if you can call it that. And, you know, this week and last week, there's lots of students coming up to Dublin, finding, you know, that the usual uh, student accommodation that comes on or rented accommodation that students move into is simply not available because students are no longer uh, get, no longer renting their flats or houses for nine months of the year and coming back on that. But that's, you know, there are several different incarnations of a complex problem. The difficulty of first-time buyers get buying new houses was simply one of them. But the basic market failure is that builders cannot make enough, they say. They say. They cannot make sufficient profits off their, uh, uh, off 
individual of the sale of individual houses to make it worth their while to sufficiently worth their while to build those houses. So there is the some analysis of, of that going on. But at the also, moment, is there? yeah, there's also a report uh, uh, report coming on that. But 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 also they say that their profits are not sufficient from the uh, uh, from the construction and sale of housings to persuade the banks to lend money to them to uh, uh, you know to pursue large scale housing developments. And that remains that's the fundamental market failure that. Uh, that goes on is that it's not paying people enough for them to build the houses. Now, but the politics of it remain very, very tricky, I think, for this government because you have a massive social problem that has, as we discussed, all sorts of incarnations at various points in uh, various points in society. And it does not lend itself to the stroke of a pen by a minister or the spending of a billion euros or two billion euros to fix it. But so isn't this one of the things so wait, 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 that, that occurs to me, the question of how, you know, how big a political issue this is going to be and how big an issue it's going to be at the next, next election when, whenever that happens, is it does affect everybody. It isn't just yeah, a social yeah. problem that affects people you know, who are unfortunate enough to be at the bottom of the socioeconomic pile. It has all these knock-on effects for young couples looking to buy a house for the first time, for people starting on their careers who may be on decent salaries but who can't find a place to live and are stuck with their parents, or maybe more accurately, their parents are stuck with them. You know? So it has, it has this you know, very, very broad range of effects. Yeah, know? that's yeah. why I think that as a political issue, it will dwarf all others. Uh, in in terms uh, as as we you know as we look towards the forthcoming political term, the difficulty for the government is that it, as we discussed, it does not lend itself to quick fixes, right. and so that no matter what the government does, it is still going to be dealing with these massive housing shortages. Society is going to be dealing with these massive housing shortages for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, just on a related sort of slightly, you mentioned the city season on August earlier on. I, I, was, I was struck by the fact that a number of newspapers, including our own, it should be said, kind of went very big on this question of the property tax, which was increases in that were deferred the last time they were due, which I think was last year or about 18 months ago. So it means that they will now fall due in 2019 um, and will be quite substantial because they will have been static for, for several years, Honestly, seven or eight years. Has changed. Um, and and of course there have been in many parts of the country, particularly in Dublin, uh, there have been a you know considerable rise in the in the price of of property assets. Now I have to say I have a house in Dublin, and I, I like everybody. I kind of look at what's the price likely to be now, as opposed to what it was five years ago. If my property tax goes up, that's fair enough. The asset has increased, but there's this. There's a, is there a little bit of scaremongering going on about the political implications of you know grannies in Dunleary having to reach into their handbags for an extra 600 euro a year. Yeah, except I suspect those grannies in Dunleary who are among the more vocal contributors to our public debate and uh, and also all vote may not... Uh, they can still pay their bloody taxes, can't they, Pat? They might not see it as <laughs> calmly <laughs> as, you do, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as you do yourself. And of course, you're, you may be talking about, you know, in some cases, the doubling of the property tax that is paid, you know, going from whatever, you know, 1,000 euros, 600 euros up to, uh, up to double. By that. international standards, it's a very, it's a very small tax. I think by you've all, uh, yeah, uh, true, though, by international standards, the, uh, the, the level at which people just, to cite but one example, the level at which people go pay the higher rate of tax is extremely uh, is extremely low. So I suppose, uh, sir, one of the things I, I, I don't think we are is... a likely 
taxed society by international standards when everything is... Well, it depends which way you slice and dice it, including, you know, whether it's GNP or GDP also or the new thing with the star. direct taxes or indirect taxes and so forth. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. What is certainly true and indisputably true is that when it comes to income tax, which is, of course, one of the big taxes that, that government pays, is that um, it, it uh, an awful lot of people do not pay income tax. Sure. That is one of the things that marks us out as being quite unusual by uh, by international standards. And then it's, it strikes me, Sarah, that you know one of the one of the many things about the water charges and the water protest was that the actual economic impact of the water charges on the average family was considerably less than a number of other measures which had been introduced during the austerity years. But it sort of gained a purchase, uh, perhaps because of the nature of the tax and the way in which you were you, you were asked to pay it. And the same might be true you know, of, of, a, of a significant property tax increase as well. Well, I think it was the simplicity of the water charge. You know, everyone accepts the water is a, is a right enshrined in our constitution. So I think, you know, the simplicity of the tax, but also what you were being, what you were being asked to pay for. And again, the timing of the introduction of the charge was really a final straw for many people. The property tax was introduced when the Troika were still in town. And so the government had some cover in terms of its introduction. They and were crucially, it was collected by the revenue commissioners who were mm. good at it. They were very good at it, yeah. And I think they had some political cover from that. Then. They had some political cover from any backlash. 2019 is a different story. The Troika are gone. People are are, are, are in the midst of a, a housing crisis. Do they really want to pay double their property tax? You know, a lot of people... Well, if they're in the middle of a property crisis, uh, if they own their property, they're not quite in the middle of a property well, crisis. Wait, they're probably benefiting from a property crisis. Their their house has doubled in price in the last 10 years. Well, that is, uh, that is <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. for the property tax. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just know, seriously, seriously, actually, I am I am slightly, slightly taken aback by this thing. I, I, I wonder, I mean, why did Michael Noon install the tax for... Because um, he knew it would be what? politically toxic and he had a lineup of of, uh, of Fine Gael backbenchers from and South Labour, Dublin yeah. who would scream blue murder if there was an increase. So that means they're going to scream double blue murder given that it's going to be double the increase I now because, the of, because of the deferral. Of it, yeah. yeah, but also, it's a, you know, it's a sweeping generalisation as well to say that because you own your property, you know, your 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 property has doubled in, in price. I mean, a lot of the people who perhaps live in... Dunleary, a granny in Dunleary, may, their, their property may not be suitable for them at the current time. And then they're being asked to for the, to double their property tax because uh, the their product or their home has been has doubled in value. I mean, I just think that this is exactly what happens if you make a decision as it was made politically by Michael Noonan not to increase the tax in a, in a relatively regular, staged kind of a way. You then get everybody throwing their hands up in horror because there hasn't been an increase for seven years and the increase is, is definitely larger. And I think this point has been made about this particular tax because the same thing happened in the United Kingdom as well. Once you freeze it, the likelihood is it's going to end up being free, frozen forever and you come back to Pat's point is that, you know, we have, you know, we don't have a broad tax base, well, which was one of the criticisms of our yeah. friends in the when they came in, that's, wasn't yeah, it? Uh, and notwithstanding that fact, the government, uh, successive governments since then, have merrily narrowed the tax ba- uh, narrowed the. Uh, and the, the most progressive tax, tax is the universal social charge, in which the government have now vowed to to abolish. Oh God, this so. is just making me depressing. I want to move <laughs> on to something a bit lighter. Leah Varadkar swanning around the place. Um, in wetsuits and t-shirts and queuing for restaurants in Chicago and checking out the borders in his fancy socks in Canada and all that kind of stuff. And every time I open my Twitter feed, he's there giving one of his video dispatches there. Is he our first full, fully-fledged social media pre- 
uh, Taoiseach, I should say. President, there is a slip of the tongue. According to Harry McGee, he is, and pretty soon he's to launch his own Instagram account, so you won't be able to escape him on any Hashtag social awesome. media platform. Uh, I think one thing we you're, you're you're in fully fledged grumpy old man mood this morning. <laughs> you're bringing us down, Hugh. Yeah. We were in great form yeah. coming in. Yeah, I've been stuck here. <laughs> yeah, you guesting for George Hook this week? Speaking of which, speaking of which, actually, you know, quite quite seriously, George Hook, yeah, in pure George Hook fashion, came out with some George Hook trolling nonsense about uh, about what Leo Varadkar was up to and how there was no substance. And Leo Varadkar actually, you know, bothered to respond to him on Twitter. Should should he do that? In a way, he's not responding to George. He's talking to the people that George is talking to. I'm pretty sure Leo doesn't care what George thinks, but he does does care what George's listeners think. And if George is trolling Leo by saying he's swanning around in his fancy socks and his Instagram account or whatever, uh, then uh, then you know, for Leo, it is the work of a moment to tap out uh, to tap out a tweet to say, "No, I'm not. I'm working." So, is that good politics in 2017? Yep. Uh, lads, if you're going to respond to every negative criticism that's uh, raised on you on by a grumpy man like George Hook on News Talk Radio when you're off in Canada, you're in dangerous waters. I mean, it, it shows... How do you mean? Spe- in what way? It shows the level of sensitivity that our current Taoiseach has to criticism. I mean, uh, now, bear in mind, I haven't I haven't read the full transcript of what George Hook said, so, uh, you know, that, that needs to be pointed out, but... I mean, the Taoiseach was on a trade mission, essentially, in uh, Canada, uh, having a bilateral meeting with the, the Canadian Prime Minister, and he was worried about what George Hook was saying. I mean, uh, George Hook would have a negative word to say about every single thing and every single person in this country. I mean, one of his famous, his the reasons he's so famous and so flamboyant is because even if Ireland hammered England and the Six Nations, and we lifted the cup. The man would still have something. No, he's a troll. To give out about. That's what he is. He's a, you know, he is a troll. He's a grump. So, and and you oh. shouldn't feed the trolls, isn't that? Well, what, I just what think, I mean, for for Varadkar, if you're going to be if you're going to be so sensitive about every form of criticism that is levelled upon you, but you're I'm just in wondering, what do you think? Do you think? Did you read that as him being personally sensitive in a sort of Donald Trump lash out straight away kind of style, or do you think it was? Kind of as I think Pat is suggesting, probably not bad that he could just say to say to the people, to his followers on Twitter, look, here I am, I'm, I'm at work. Don't pay any attention to that nonsense. I think if he had have done it in a different way, maybe if he had of um, if he had used his social media platform to outline what he had done in Canada, I've secured this or I've met uh, Justin and I've done this and I've walked in the Montreal Pride Parade. Instead, he made it personal to George Hook, which made it personal to him. So I just think, you know, like, look, it's Twitter. I mean, it's it's an echo chamber, essentially. Yeah, um, it just gave Hook, George Hook, the oxygen to go on another rant about Mr. Varadkar on his show. And in so, relation to um, Mr. Varadkar and his approach to the media and social media and all that, he's, what, what's this new unit which he's set up uh, in government buildings, this me- messaging department? Strategic Information Unit. Strategic Information Unit. Strategic Communications Unit. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll try and figure that yeah, out afterwards. Yeah, we'll have yeah. to figure it out. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's run by John Concannon, who famously was the man who brought us the Wild Atlantic Way, the Gathering, and... And Culture other, Ireland as well. Other, 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 other hits too numerous to mention. Who's <laughs> um, regarded as one of the foremost marketers Mm-hmm. In, uh, uh, um, in in Ireland, very energetic chap. Anybody who's met him will know that he's and, very energetic and personable. Yeah, and I think the idea is that the 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 work of government, the many 
great things that the government does for each and every one of us. Um, of which we're very grateful be, for. Uh, uh, well, it appears that some people are insufficiently it's, grateful. Cut this sarcasm the idea, a knife here. Um. The idea, I think, is is that there will be a more coherent and effective messaging operation. Now, you know, you can argue that this is a, le- a legitimate object of government to communicate to its citizens the work it does on uh, on their behalf. I mean, but it just, also just seems to me the, there's a political objective. Yeah. Well, can I just, just, just to be clear, just for the benefit of ignoramuses like me, um, look, what was the system previously by which the Enda Kenny and predecessors, there was a there was a government press secretary, there was an office there, which basically put out press releases. The government releases. information office who yeah. looked after press So, what is, so what is the difference between that and this? This is intended to be communicating the message and work yeah. of government as a whole across all departments. As opposed to just the Taoiseach, Department of the Taoiseach? Yeah, it be coordinated in the Department of Taoiseach, yeah. but it will take, say for instance, it's, it's, I, I wrote a little bit about this um, back, in, uh, back in July, and one of the intentions I think is that you'll see, say, the, the child care uh, initiative of being rolled out um, this autumn, which is additional childcare services funded by the government and so forth, is that you will see that that is the sort of message that you will see heavily promoted right across government and coordinated by this office. Now, but for, you know, you can't escape that there is a political tinge to that because it will be Fine Gael ministers and and a Fine Gael Taoiseach that are uh, you know that are communicating it and that ultimately will seek electoral credit for it Um, so you know it is I'm sure a legitimate exercise of uh, of government communication activities does he? Sure he doesn't, because he realises uh, because he realises, as with anyone with a political brain, is that there's a potential political upside for the government on this. Yeah, essentially, previously you had a government press secretary and you had the government information service, and the government information service really was to, you know, was to issue press releases on behalf of the Taoiseach and to notify journalists of his whereabouts if he was, if he or she was available to do uh, you know, media opportunities. Essentially what we have now is a completely different system, because we have a government press secretary. I think we have two at present, um, but we have a government press secretary. We now have a head of GIS. We had the government information service, and now we have a strategic information. Plus, unit. you have press secretaries in all the departments. Plus, Don't you have yeah, media, and minis- media teams, ministerial in, in advisors. All the, all yeah, the respective but there's another layer there in the ter- in terms of you have the government press sec- secretary, then you have a head of GIS, which in previous governments was. Um, you know, was the was the deputy government press uh, secretary for the uh, junior coalition party. Mm. Um, now you have a government press secretary, a assistant government press secretary who represents the independents at government. Now you've a head of the government information service. You've got the government information service, and okay, you have I'm the strategic information unit. Okay. Essentially, a much bigger press operation. A most much bigger press operation. Press and communications. Yeah. Uh, and as Mary Regan wrote. Uh, you know, wrote, wrote a great piece about this at the weekend um, in the Sunday Business Post. Essentially, it it highlights, you know, the Taoiseach's absolute focus on PR and, um, you know, Pat, uh, Pat is right, this strategic information unit is to sell the government's message to the general public. But So George Hook is right after all. There's words you've never heard in these walls before. <laughs> um, essentially, that's a party political job. I mean, yeah. you know, Minister Vragkar and the Fine Gael members of government are backed up by a party political press office. If they want to get a party political message out, that's the route that they should go down. But they now have a strategic information unit to effectively do 
what is a political job for them. So, you know, Micheál Martin is right. This isn't this isn't the job of um, a government appointed uh, service. It should be for a party political press office to do so. All governments, I think, blur the line between public information and political communication. But it's certainly the case. John Cacano is a public servant, it should be said as well, isn't he? Yeah, mm. he is. He's not a political appointment. Exactly. So he's a temporary, mm. uh, a temp- a temporarily contracted public servant, and as such, should not operate to political agenda. To a political agenda. At the same time, you know, it is sometimes legitimately impossible to, uh, you know, to disaggregate political communication or from our, our government communications from the political context in which they take place. But I think, you know, and, and uh, Sarah mentioned about Michal Martin's views on, on the subject, I think you will see it front and centre of everything that Fianna Fáil says over the autumn and others as well, perhaps, about the government. Uh, they will accuse uh, Leo Varadkar of being all spin, no substance. They will accuse him of being the press press opportunity Taoiseach and they will ask him where the substance is uh, beneath it. And from, you know, for Varadkar's purposes and for the government's purposes, it's all very fine having a message delivery system and a refined and expanded uh, uh, message delivery system. But the question that I suppose we will have to try and tease out over the autumn is, what is the message? What is the substance behind the political communication? And that, I suppose, is something that we remain to hear from Mr. And so there'll be much more grumpiness to come. Pat and Sarah, thanks very much for coming back into us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or indeed you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. And if you're already a subscriber, we're always grateful if you take a moment to share or recommend the podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.